Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. All right, good to see everybody. I'm excited because tomorrow is my 44th anniversary of getting born again. January 10th, 1978, a young man by the name of Michael Pieri came up to me in a hotel lobby in Washington, D.C. and asked me if I was saved. And I said to him, I don't know. And he said, if you don't know, then you're not come with me. And I said, where am I going? And he says, I'm taking you out to dinner to share with you the way of salvation. I said to him, who sent you? He said, God sent me. And I had just prayed for God to send somebody my way if that was true. And so wherever Michael Pieri is, I don't know if he's still alive. He was my age, my height, even had a mustache like me at that time. God bless him, and uh, thank God for his obedience in sharing the gospel. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord that you've given us. Thank you for giving us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began our series on 2 Corinthians and we talked about how 1 Corinthians was a letter that was written about a year prior to that. And uh, we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8, that Paul wrote that letter while he was in Ephesus. Because he says, I may tarry in Ephesus until the day of Pentecost. So we know that uh, he was in Ephesus. So the second missionary journey Paul took which was recorded in first, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 18, was when he founded the church of Corinth. The second missionary journey, when he went to Asia Minor and established the church in Ephesus, is in Acts 19. His third missionary journey, when he went back to Corinth and other places we see in Acts chapter 20. But as we look at what happened in Ephesus, there was an incredible move of the Spirit of God to the point in which uh, the whole city had the fear of the Lord. All the inhabitants feared the name of Jesus. Demons were being cast out. It even resulted in a riot taking place because it disrupted the economy because people weren't buying idols anymore because of faith in Christ. And while that great move of God was going on, there was a huge disruption uh, that was still taking place in the church of Corinth. And uh, it was uh, so bad that Paul had no rest in his spirit and actually left what God was doing uh, in Macedonia during his third missionary journey, even though the Lord opened up a door for him because he was trying to find Titus to see if the first letter he wrote actually had any uh, power, if it caused any repentance. And so we think that today with the church of there's some scandals that we've read about 
whether it's the, you know, we know about some of the denominational church scandals, some of the evangelical church, and we think, oh my God, you know, this never happened before. Well, all you got to do is read the New Testament epistles, the first epistle to Corinthians, and you'll see that scandal is nothing new because you have people, right? So there is no perfect church, and if there was, it wouldn't be perfect as soon as you came to it. Or as soon as I came to it. Why? Because of human nature. You're putting people together. And some are committed to Christ. Some are not. People are mixed in certain areas and their agendas and different things. Um, and so in the backdrop of that, Paul also had people saying that he wasn't a genuine apostle. And so we see in Second Corinthians, he's actually put into a position where he has to defend his apostleship. Can you imagine saying he wasn't a legit apostle? He wasn't bona fide. And so let's take, uh, let's pick up 2 Corinthians. We're going to start with verse um, 23 in chapter 1 as a context here. Sometimes the chapters and verses are out of context. The Bible didn't have context like that. Never had chapters and verses. It was only one flowing letter. And so Paul says, very interestingly, in verse 23, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but a fellow work is for your joy, for, your, for, for by faith you stand. For I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who's made sorrowful by me? And so we see that there was a, a mess going on in the church. Evidently, he went. We don't have a recording of the second time he went, but we could tell by reading 2 Corinthians that he went a second time, and there was a lot of sorrow, there was a lot of problems, there was a lot of anguish, and then he said he was going to come again to Corinth to try to straighten out the mess, but he didn't go because he wanted to spare them, meaning he was probably so angry and he felt like it was better for him to give them some space to work out their issues. Can you imagine? The one who founded the church felt like it was better not to be there for a period of time because they had to work out their own issues. It was that bad. There was a lot of stuff going on. And, um, and so he didn't want to be filled with overmuch sorrow, as the King James would say, he didn't want to have sorrow over those who should have brought him joy. He didn't want to have sorrow over those who should have repented and didn't repent. There was a lot of uh, a turmoil going on. And during this season, the last two years, it has been exceedingly difficult, not only for everybody in the world, but pastors. 38% uh, of the pastors have either quit or maybe 40-something percent have tried looking for another job. It has been very, very difficult. Churches have closed down. 
Churches have had to merge because they couldn't afford financially to keep up with their big buildings. Uh, there were uh, people who weren't prepared to go online. I remember I knew three weeks ahead of time from all my reading that we were going to probably not be able to meet. There was going to be a shutdown, so we worked 14 hours a day revamping the sanctuary and getting us ready for that pivot. And I recorded four messages one week to prepare for the fact that we had to uh, understand that we weren't going to be able to meet, and thank God we were able to pivot. Uh, but this has been a very difficult time. But throughout human history, there are always seasons of great hardship. And uh, in some ways, I think we're very spoiled and entitled. I remember when I was a kid, we would walk to school in the middle of a blizzard. Now, if there's one inch of snow, they cancel school. I mean, my parents would, I, walk, I was eight years old. I didn't even have anyone going with me. I walked to school for three miles. Uh, and now, you know, there's a little issue, and now there's panic all over, there's mass hysteria, even over COVID, when it's no more than a common cold right now with Omicron, and people are not even contagious anymore, if, uh, uh, even if they've been exposed to it, if they don't have a fever and they don't have symptoms. But there's mass hysteria over every little thing right now. And can you imagine telling this to the great generation of World War II, where people had to risk their lives and people were participating in things like D-Day and much of the population of Europe was lost because of defending their homeland. And so uh, some of the things that we call challenges today, previous generations would not look at as a challenge. They would probably smear, sneer at us. But nonetheless, it has been a very difficult time the last two years, economically, health-wise, and we have lost many people to COVID, especially the first wave of it. 85 elders and pastors died in the first wave when it was the first mutation, very, very deadly mutation. So we're not belittling that. But we have to understand there's always been challenges in the church place, in the workplace, in the family, everywhere you go. If I was to ask you for a show of hands, how many of you have a really big challenge? I'm sure everybody would say I have at least one big challenge in my life. And so it's no different in the church. And so we see Paul was in this situation with the church of Corinth, and we'll get to some of that in a minute. And he said in verse... Five, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So there was somebody who was in gross sin, and what Paul was saying is when we have somebody living like that in the community of believers, it affects the whole church if it's not dealt with properly. And so he said, um, it is, he has caused grief. To all of you, to some extent, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So one of the challenges Paul had amongst many, as we look at 1 Corinthians, where they had an abuse of the gifts, they had people who were selfish, 
uh, people who are getting drunk during the communion table. Uh, there's a lot of crazy things going on. But one of the things that happened, uh, let's just turn quickly real fast to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is his first epistle. This is when he found out about a serious moral situation. He said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual morality as is not even named among the Gentiles, meaning not even the heathen, not even the ones, the non-Jews and non-Christians are doing what this person is reported to have doing. And what is that? That a man had his father's wife. There was a man sleeping, perhaps with his stepmother, that doesn't call it his mother, but his father's wife in the church, and they were tolerating it. Now, we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about the first church, the supposed perfect church, the supposed apostolic church, the church founded by the great apostle Paul. And there was a guy sleeping with his mother or stepmother. And what was the response of the church? And you were puffed up, meaning they were arrogant. And you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so they were maybe puffed up saying, well, the grace of God will cover this, or we'll be fine, or we could ignore this, you know, we have Jesus, we could just let anything go on, as long as we're okay and going to heaven. So Paul is saying, man, you shouldn't have responded but you should, like that, but you should have mourned. And then he said, your glorying is not good, verse 6, because a, a little bit of leaven leavens through the whole lump, meaning if you tolerate something like that, with one person, it's going to spread to another person and another person. And soon the whole church is going to be filled with sexually immoral people with no standards, no ethics. The whole church is going to collapse, basically. And, uh, and so he puts in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I did not mean with the immoral people of the world. Uh, since then, you would have to leave the world. But I'm writing to you not to keep company who is a brother who is sexually immoral or a coveter or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And so what he's saying is temporarily you need to put that person out until they repent. Now he's not saying that if someone falls into sin you put them out of the church, but he's saying if someone is in gross sin and they don't repent, there has to be discipline, otherwise there's no standard. What is the point of having a church if we're tolerating and celebrating and being puffed up and acting just like everybody else? What kind of church is that, right? It's not even a church anymore. And so Paul told him what to do, and in that context, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, try to follow this. That's when he says, if anyone has caused grief... He has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So then Paul got word that eventually they did put this person out and they were trying to discipline the person and act towards the person in such a way that they would feel guilty and they would want, want to come back to God. And that's why Paul says now in verse 7, on the contrary, now you should forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a person is swallowed up with too much sorrow. Meaning you got to know when to let up. When to discern they've really repented. And once they have, receive them back. 
Obviously, if they really repented, they're not going to be sleeping with that person anymore. They're going to want to serve the Lord. They're going to want to live for Christ. And so he says, bring them back because they'll be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And he elaborates a bit more in 2 Corinthians 7, this portion here. This way we have context, even though we're going to read it anyway when we get to it in a few weeks. He said, verse 8, even if I made you sorry with my letter, the first Corinthians, when he corrected him, uh, corrected the church for tolerating that, he said, even though if I made you sorrowful, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that this same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Now this is so key. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted of. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so there's conviction which comes from the Holy Spirit but then there's sorrow and condemnation that comes from the world or from the enemy and we have to discern the difference between the two having conviction is always good that brings sorrow that brings a feeling of guilt and that leads us if it's from God back to God but when our guilt brings condemnation, that doesn't lead us back to God, that leads us away from God. That's not from God, that's from the enemy. And that's what Paul is warning about. Don't let him be filled with overmuch sorrow. We want to make sure he knows that God still has redeemed him. God has still forgiven him. God will take him back even though what he did was really bad. There is no sin greater than the blood of Jesus. And so, even in our own life, we have to distinguish between condemnation and conviction. Holy Spirit never condemns us, because that means there's no hope. And that whenever we feel a sense of sorrow that is so great that we're ashamed to come to God, ashamed to come to church, and we want to give up, that's not conviction. That's the enemy playing a trick in your brain. It's psychological warfare to separate you from the things of God. But conviction means that you want to get back with the church. You want to get back with God. You have a a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, to get it right. And so it would be like an athlete who came in second in a race and... uh, If you want to quit because you're not the best or because you didn't meet the standards, that's not really being a true athlete, is it? Wanted to get better and the next time win the race or uh, beat your mark or come to your standard, that's the way you should be if you're a true Olympian. And God has called us to run the race. And that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect when we run the race. And we have to make sure that we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, but not to allow the devil to condemn us and know the difference between the two. 
And so what did Paul say? I want you to affirm, reaffirm your love to this person. Verse 8. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive, also I forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So what Paul is saying is, church, reach out. Make sure you forgive this person. Bring that person back into the fold. They've repented. If you don't, Satan is going to take advantage of it. Not only he'll destroy that person, he'll start destroying the people in the church. Because how many know if we hold unforgiveness in our hearts towards somebody, no matter how much they've hurt us, eventually that unforgiveness is going to turn to bitterness. And that bitterness is like a rot, like gangrene. It's like cancer. It works through. It doesn't, it's going to affect every aspect of our life, not just an anger or a bad feeling towards one person. It's going to affect how we feel with our spouse, our family, and even ourselves. And it can psychologically wreak havoc in our life. And so this is why we need to forgive people. Not for their sake, even for our sake. Because when you have unforgiveness, you're actually hurting yourself. Because the person you're punishing is yourself. Because you're walking around with bad feelings. And you're allowing somebody else to emotionally control you. When you forgive, you take off the bondages this person has over you. You're free in Christ. In the same way Jesus forgave you and forgave me because of the blood that he shed. In that same way, we ought to forgive other people. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive others their sin against you, how could I forgive you for your sins? And so let's release people. And if we don't, we're also opening a door to satanic and demonic attack. And we don't want that. And one of the things I have seen when people have come to me who've had demonic oppression in their life is that unless I get them to forgive everybody they have ought against, it's hard to deal with that demonic entity in their life. So receiving Christ as Lord is the most important thing. Secondarily, forgiving other people. Satan loves bitterness. He loves envy and jealousy and hatred. And he loves excessive anger. He loves that stuff. And he dwells in people who entertain that because we're giving him an open door. We're saying, hey, come have Starbucks with me, Mr. Devil. We're opening the door to a heart when we entertain unforgiveness and bitterness. And then he says in verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Paul was so upset over what was going on 
He wrote at least one letter. It's very possible he wrote two letters. The second one we, we don't know of. And he was trying to correct them and win them over. And he had not heard of a response yet. Obviously, in those days, there were no cell phones, no Twitter, no Instagram. There was no way of knowing if his first letter correcting them actually took effect. So he sent Titus to see what happened. And his spirit had no rest because Titus didn't come back yet. And he was so weighted down and burdened. And I could resonate with Paul. I've had this kind of situation happen to me. My wife has felt that. All true shepherds. You get so weighted down and burdened for people. You're so concerned and worried if you don't hear from them. It, it, it affects your day. It affects your vacation. It's like this is not something me and my wife turn on and off like a water faucet. We really love people. This is, we don't do this for money. If I was going to do something for money, I would have stayed doing what I was doing before I knew the Lord. Or I had a trajectory of making it big in, in music and other areas. We're doing this because we love God and love people. And that's what Paul was saying here. And his spirit had no rest. And it even interrupted a, a, a revival that was taking place. said that the Lord opened up a door for the gospel. There was an incredible door. And even though the Lord opened up that door. Now listen, this is a great apostle. This shows how he even gave in to psychological warfare with worry and anxiety. Even though the Lord, and he admitted it, the Lord opened up a door. He still left. It says, a door was open, I had no rest, because I didn't find Titus, my brother, and I took leave of them, and he departed for Macedonia, which was on the way to Corinth. Now we find a few verses later that Titus was eventually found. I don't want to keep you on edge so much that you have to watch Bobo Fat next week. I mean, I want you to know what's going on now. And if you don't understand what I said, then don't worry about it. <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 6, he says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, he eventually, I put that word in, comfort us, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, meaning the Corinthians, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal, your zeal for me, that I have rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, his first, perhaps second letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So the first time he sent it, he was wondering, man, I might have been too strong here. Of course, the controversy, I don't know if they're going to receive it. So he regretted it, but now he doesn't regret it, for I perceive that that same letter that made you sorry, though only for a while, though I rejoice that now that you were made sorry, your sorrow has led you to repentance. And that came all by the way of that letter he wrote. And so we see Paul, this great apostle, left a place of ministry that God opened up a door for because he was filled with worry and anxiety that he didn't have to have. He should have just trusted God. We could say in retrospect, 
And he should have stayed ministering because everything was okay and he didn't know it. And the proof was Titus came and shared with him, hey man, it's good. They eventually repented. They eventually turned. They eventually took that person back. They did, you know, they did everything that you wanted. And so Paul was comforted. And this shows us the humanity. Sometimes Christians act like super spiritual morons. They get so mystical. I walk in faith and power. Nothing affects me. I'm God's anointed, anointed man. I'm always walking in victory. I remember, you know, years ago, I'm glad in our church we don't have people who do that. I'd say, how you doing? Highly favored and blessed. Meanwhile, they want to commit suicide. Meanwhile, their marriage is falling apart. Their kids are backslidden. They lost their job. Stop acting like religious robots and phonies. One thing me and my wife have in common, amongst other things, is we hate religion. We hate phoniness. We hate superficiality. I'm up here because I feel God's call on me 44 years later. We're not hirelings. We really do love God and love people. And Paul winds up saying that here. Uh, the, one of the last verses here. And, uh, and so the Bible is very graphic with the failure of God's people. With the humanity. With the things we deal with. And it's not unspiritual for you to admit to somebody, I'm really struggling. Man, pray for me. I need a friend. You know, my faith is not where it should be right now. I need your faith. I remember one time I gave in to discouragement, and I got to a place I was so depressed that I couldn't even pray. I had to call my best friend up, and I said, I'm in a bad place. I'm, swim I'm, I'm drowning. I'm not swimming. Swimming. I need you to pray for me. Pray me out of this. And I just let them pray over me on the phone for maybe a half hour until I actually got hope back. Amen. And then I was okay. I was able to pray on my own. And so Paul was admitting this to baby Christians. They couldn't have been saved more than two years. And they were having a lot of problems. And he admitted, I left an open door. I left a place of ministry that God gave me because I was so worried and concerned about you. If Paul could be that real and transparent, why can't we? Why can't we walk with God and have the Holy Spirit moving in power, but at the same time face our humanity? our frailties and not act like superficial, mystical supergiants that don't even relate to this world. They act stupid sometimes. Let's develop real and genuine friendships and relationships in the church and not hide behind the religion and the religious culture of Christianity that we see in so many places. Right? Okay. So verse 14. 
Now, thanks be to God. Oh, I like that. Somebody say, thanks be to God. So Paul says that right after he admitted he left an open door of the gospel. And he said, now thanks be to God who always, I love that word always. You know what the Greek word is for always? Always. <laughs> now thanks be to God who always, not sometimes, leads us in his triumph in Christ. He didn't feel that way when he left that open door. But he stated it as a matter of fact, in retrospect. And the sooner we come to that place, the less we're going to react and respond based on our emotions, our psychological maladies and dysfunctions. The less we're going to react to other people, the more we're going to react proactively based on Jesus' faithfulness. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph. And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to other the aroma of life leading to life. And so Paul is writing to a culture that understood what he was saying. He's talking about a triumphal procession and that there was some who would be aware of the fact that they were, they had impending doom and others who understood they were going to live, which was taken from the conquering Roman Empire, emperor. After a, a great victory, they would come into the city let's say the city of Rome, and it would be a big procession, and they would march people who were captive. Some of the captives were sentenced to death, and they would be in one section. Other captives would be allowed to live. Perhaps they would continue on, maybe as slaves or prisoners in some way. And so there was this triumphal procession that would belittle their enemies, but would also give praise to Rome in front of multitudes. And so what he is saying here is Jesus, as the true emperor, as the true Caesar, as the true potentate, as the true king of kings and lord of lords, always leads us back after battle in triumph. And he spreads the knowledge, the aroma of his triumph to people. Some, it's the aroma of death, and to others, the aroma of life. To those who want to serve and follow Christ, it's the aroma of life when they see the triumph of the gospel. To those who are disobedient to God and don't want anything to do with the things of God, there's some kind of aroma or conviction or signal to them of separation from God, of lack of meaning and purpose like these Christians have. It's an aroma of death. And then Paul says, but who is sufficient for these things? Meaning, who is the one God is equipped and called to represent this, this triumphant Christ who for eternity is going to be lauded? 
and applauded and celebrated as the true king of kings. Who's sufficient to represent him, to preach his word? He said, for we are not as so many who peddle the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And so he's saying that many were peddling the word of God. Again, we think this only happened today. You have some of these preachers. Thank God, most of the ones I know, I'd say, the ones I walk with aren't like this. But we hear of it time to time. The word peddling means a huckster, a retailer, somebody who's using the Bible for profit. They're doing it not with the objective of glorifying God and bringing people to God and building them up, but their objective is using it to take advantage of people who are naive to benefit themselves, especially financially, and they're only doing it for financial benefit. So they're hucksters, according to Paul, peddlers, retailers, thinking that godliness is for profit instead of to honor God. And so we have hucksters today. I remember when I was an usher at the Brooklyn Academy of Music between the ages of 14 to 19. And I was backstage and I saw these southern preachers come and preach and take advantage of all these poor people in minority communities and get money. And in the back would be laughing about it. I remember one time I was going to take one guy out. I was going to beat the whatever out of him. And my friend Sal, bless his soul, was the bass player in our church. He held me back. I was a 15-year-old massive animal, benching twice my weight, and I was going to clock this guy in the face and knock him out so he couldn't go back and preach. And my friend stopped me. And so you have these hucksters today. And I would still do it if I had the chance, if my friend didn't hold me back, because I hate that stuff. One thing I hate more than religion is people taking advantage of the people of God in the name of Christ. Jesus didn't take he didn't like that either as he went into the temple. He took out a cord of whips. Whips. He whipped these people, overturned their tables. He wasn't some pamsy, whamsy, tiny Tim walking through the tulips, singing with a fiddle. He was a man's man. He wouldn't tolerate that nonsense. And we need not tolerate it either. And so he said, we're not as others who peddle the word of God. Next chapter, and we'll wrap it up with this just to bring context. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you? 
or letters of commendation from you. And so he's saying, do I have to constantly defend myself? And then as you get back to uh, move forward to chapter 10, 11 and 12, Paul is in a position where he has to defend his apostleship. There were people saying he wasn't a genuine apostle. There were super apostles putting him down, trying to rob the loyalty of the church from him. My God, if we think that we have problems today, all you got to do is read the New Testament and the stuff these people had to go through, these original apostles who Paul wound up getting his head cut off by Nero in 64 A.D. Peter, I think 63 A.D., was crucified upside down because the culture was so against the gospel. And so, what is the moral of this lesson today? Perseverance. Whether they malign you, whether you have a lot of psychological pressure, whether you're dealing with a lot of anxiety because of situations. And the more we understand we can't control others and we can't control life and we should just focus more on the things we can control and influence, the more we get to that place, the more we're going to know that God always leads us, not sometimes, always leads us. Someone say, God always leads me in his triumph in Christ. We don't know what this year is going to bring. I remember when 2020 was beginning, everybody was saying, it's the roaring 20s. It's going to be the greatest year of America since the 1920s. You see how that turned out. Then when 2020 was over, we said, all right, thank God, 2020 is over. Now we got a new day. Yeah, we see what happened there. We jumped from the frying pan into the fire. I don't know, and I'm not going to prophesy, and I'm not going to tell you that 2022 is going to be better than 2021. I don't know that. But the one thing I can say is God always leads us in his triumph in Christ. The one thing I can say is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is not a man that he should lie and the son of man that he should repent. He doesn't say yes one minute and no the next. He's dependable. He's immutable. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. And we could surrender our life to him every single day, knowing that what we commit to him, he is able to keep until eternity. And so let's, uh, let's pray. We're still in the beginning of this year, this coming week is consecration week. And I really urge you all to come you want to come in an astronaut suit with mask, I don't care what you wear, but come Tuesday night as we pray together at 730. I'll be here, God willing. If God doesn't rapture me before you, I'll be here. I've been praying that I'd be like Enoch, who was and was not. That's 
forget about if you know what I'm talking about. Go to Hebrews 11, Genesis, uh, what is it, Genesis 4, I don't know. But let's come together. Let's consecrate ourselves this week. And any way you could push some food away, stay away from Popeye's for a week. Maybe just have vegetables, maybe skip a meal, but let's consecrate ourselves this week and really uh, just trust that God is in control of our life, consecrate our life, our family, give everything to him this week. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. Lord, we commit this year to you. We commit ourselves to you. Thank you that you always lead us in your triumph in Christ. Not sometimes, but always. And you spread your fragrance through us. Even as my wife mentioned before, Jesus said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But now he said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. With all of our imperfections, with our lack of prescience and understanding what tomorrow brings, with all of the liabilities and limitations we have as a people. You still called us the light of the world. And Father, use us to spread your love, yes, God. spread the gospel, and to bring people to you, people who are in dire need, people who are so far from you, people who are living lives that are far below what you have called them to live. Use us to bring these prodigals, these lost children, back to yourself, those far from God, into relationship. And Lord, we come against anxiety. We come against fear. We come against this mass hysteria over pandemic. We come against those voices and group think that are leading people a certain way and father we pray that you would help us to trust you in spite of what the media says in spite of the fear in spite of the anxiety in spite of all the things that are are being spoken and being willed upon the population we come against all of that and we pray and believe that we would walk in the mind of christ for you have not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. You've given us the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, the spirit of God that has established us, that has sealed us, which guarantees our eternal life from now on. And we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, the worship team is going to minister before we dismiss. Amen. We pray that you were blessed by this word. For more information about our church, 
please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.